0: Now, let's get on with the show.
1: Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Compliance Conversations. I am CJ Wolf and I am working with Healthicity. This is Healthicity's podcast. We're grateful for their sponsorship and um, are excited to have two new guests today Keith Duggar and Sean McKenna, both outstanding attorneys. Welcome, gentlemen. Good morning. How are you today, CJ? Doing great. And both of you are joining us from the great state of Texas. Is that right? That's right. Yep, yeah, here in Dallas. Great, great. Yeah, I used to live in Texas and worked for the University of Texas system and um, so have some fond memories there. Uh, as usual, we'd like to um, allow our guests to uh, take some time to introduce themselves. Um, gentlemen, would you like to, to start and tell us a little bit about your professional background and what you're doing currently? Yeah, absolutely,
0: Jay. And I'm thankful to be in Keith Duggar's conference room at Hall Render, but Sean McKenna here with Spencer Fain as a partner in the Dallas office. I represent healthcare providers around the country and enforcement of white collar actions. I spent first almost 15 years of my career with the federal government, uh, with CMS as a inside attorney, then OIG in DC, and then 10 years as an AUSA prosecuting Healthcare fraud cases, uh, civilly and criminally. And so since 2013, I've been in private practice, uh, helping out providers and addressing all those big bad government issues. So thank you, Keith.
2: Yeah, yeah thanks, Sean and, and CJ. Thanks for having us on today. Uh, as you mentioned, my name is Keith Dugger. I am a shareholder in the Dallas office of Hall Render. Um, I've been practicing health law since 1996. Um, so been doing it a while. Uh, have been really on the the I guess you would call it the opposite end of what Sean does. Um, been outside the courtroom and have really focused on uh, strategic planning, uh, assessment, and analysis of of uh, the laws as applied to various uh, transactions or arrangements, um, and uh, have have a little bit of a of a broad practice. But fraud and abuse has really been my bread and butter uh, ever since I started back in '96. But uh, again. It's great to be here and, and hopefully we can have a really uh, interesting conversation for you today. Okay.
1: Well, yeah. that today You might have to wrap it up with that long intro to you. Thanks so much. <laughs> 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 well, that's awesome. That's perfect. We love it. Um, and you know, our audience pr- predominantly compliance professionals, right? And that's part of the reason why I wanted uh, Keith and Sean on is because they're both attorneys dealing with this stuff on a day by day basis with their clients. Uh, and so I thought we'd I'd ask them some questions about what they're seeing out there, right? It, it's one thing to be in-house, and that's good, and that has its role, but when you have multiple clients, you probably start to get a sense of, oh, these trends, and oh, this is what's going on, and oh, I saw that creep up with another client, and those sorts of things. And we're going to talk a little bit about anti-kickback statute and um, private equity stuff, compensation, uh, but also we'll we'll talk and see where the conversation leads us. But Sean, if I could kind of start with anti-kickback statute, if if you just briefly Briefly, you know, maybe thirty seconds or so. Just give us a quick primer uh, on that. You know, intent-based. You know, one-purpose rule. You know, for some of our very new listeners who might not know the basis. Yeah, absolutely. I thought I didn't have to
0: think today, C.J. But I'll dust it off. Now, know, uh, <laughs> anti kickback statute is uh, one of the most prolific statutes that the federal government and state equivalents have. It essentially bars the relationship referral relationship between certain parties, uh, not necessarily clinicians, but could be anybody, including those in a position to influence or direct potential referrals under a federal healthcare program. And so it's a criminal statute, punishable up to 10 years per offense. It can be the basis for a False Claims Act civil action, and it often is increasingly and as you pointed out it's a very draconian statute because the government the test seems to still be although i disagree vehemently with it because it renders all the guidance and safe harbors we can talk about later uh superfluous is that if one purpose of the alleged arrangement or the referral is to obtain referrals it could be with the proper intent uh, deemed a violation of the AKS and or the False Claims Act statute. So you can quickly see, C.J. and Keith, right, that it becomes almost endless, that almost every transaction from a business perspective, a provider is going to go in, our entity is going to do an ROI, a pro forma on whether this makes sense. But doing so, putting in writing can be used as a government agent or a whistleblower as a basis for a violation of the one purpose test. That land fair, in my opinion.
2: yeah, absolutely. I think the scary part of being in the healthcare industry with a, a, a statute like the anti Kickback statute is the um, unlimited breadth of what it can apply to. And what would typically be a normal everyday uh, occurrence or transaction can be criminalized in the healthcare um, in, in the healthcare context. And so it it really does require a lot of focus. It requires a lot of understanding of the statute and then a lot of faith that what you've done if you're ever challenged that you're able to explain um, what you've done and how it is not a violation of statute. So again that's why it's nice to have uh, attorneys like uh, Sean on here who have really looked at and, and uh, litigated that any kickback statute approach uh, on both sides and uh, I, I think it's one of those things that compliance uh, really creates a lot of of um, issues for us to to look at and and help our clients with so
0: yeah and that's a great point we've been in this conference room before with shared clients and we're trying to talk to them and advise them in what is the risk right keith that's right and that's really profound because the government has taken that risk almost to the extreme the pendulum has not swung back yet it might start being that way but the department of justice takes such an aggressive position so do whistleblowers. You know, it almost seems like the intent requirement, knowingly willful, uh, is just not there anymore. It's just simply you enter this transaction, a physician or some other entity got referrals and,
1: and made money guilty.
2: Yeah. Right. Yeah, but a lot yeah. of times Oh, go ahead, CJ, sorry.
1: Yeah, I was just gonna say, you know, um I I try to explain this concept to people in other industries, (laughs) you know, like in, in construction or in restaurants or in banking, it's like you get a free toaster. If you open an account with us, like it's allowed, but in in healthcare, it's not. And so it's kind of a foreign concept for people coming outside of healthcare. Um, uh, Yeah. So go ahead uh, on your thought that you're, you're going to start there.
2: Well, the the other thing I want to follow up on what you just said, Um, but also a lot of times in the law, You know whether it's in some other aspect of healthcare or in other industries, you can say, if this, then that. But with the anti-kickback statute, the guidance is really, if this, then it could be this, that, or the other, because it depends upon what your intent is. It depends upon facts and circumstances. Can the government show that you had intent, not because you said, I want to violate the statute, but because of your acts or your omissions to act, on that, the other thing I would tell you is what makes it even more complicated is that there are things you can do in the healthcare environment that are dependent upon who is the payer. So, right. for example, with respect to uh, everybody has seen these little uh, pharmacy cards that you can get your first ten refills for a copay of twenty five dollars as opposed to a hundred or one hundred and fifty dollars. Right. Well, you can't do that with Medicare and Medicaid. But you can do that in many cases with commercial payers. So it even differentiates and depends upon who is the payer as to yeah. what you can do. So it makes it even more complicated. Yeah, that's a great point,
0: Keith, because when people are trying to carve out their business and set their model up, well, it seems preposterous to me that you can do one set of things for non-Medicare, Medicaid, and don't forget our, the stepsister tri-care, mm-hmm. their campus. Uh, but also, you can't do it for one or the other. And so, you know, I can give out, you know, you know, gratuities and chopsticks around here. But at this point, C.J., you're almost hit to the point where can you even give out a pad of paper or pens? Right. And unfortunately, most manufacturers and providers don't accept them, don't want to do it anymore. And that seems to be a little ridiculous that the OIG and the government have legislated and spent time and resources on regulations talking about de minimis and what is that? Is it $10, 50 bucks? Keith, when you're a surgeon or you're, you know, a billion dollar organization, yes. do you really care about 10 bucks as an inducement? It's not going to sway the needle, but the
1: government sure is that seems like it. I yeah, well, like to collapse well, that, so. Yeah, and wasn't there a settlement a year or two back on, uh, I think it was um labs with urinalysis, and I think the The company that got in trouble, they were giving the urine collection cup, which could be cents, you know, 10 cents. They were giving those cups as free. Does that one ring a bell? Do you remember that one? Yeah, that's a very common allegation, CJ. And
0: uh, Keith and I have had a lot of lab cases together. And, mm-hmm. you know, as the government takes a position, well, it might be a buck free cups, you know, pulling sample cups. Uh, to me, it was kind of de minimis, but in the aggregate, if you're a national company, It could be a significant amount across the country. More importantly, I think the government really has cracked down, and I don't disagree with this, on the, uh, what, the shipping and
2: processing fees, Keith. Yeah, I think that that's it, the shipping and processing fees. And it really came out um, over the last couple of years when we had the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, You know, we were trying to be quick and responsive to handling the needs of patients who needed to be tested, uh trying to prevent the disease from spreading uh faster or or more prolifically than than uh, uh than what we can handle and so in in the attempts to be nimble and allow um people to 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 provide that testing provide the treatment the government started to expand what it what its rules would allow and now after the pandemic is over it's not technically over we still have a public health emergency but right. now the government is going to go back and it's going to be a retrospective review of did you do this right or did you not do it. So I don't want to lose um, in the forest the fact that the laws that are there uh, actually have some really positive goals. What they're trying to do is to prevent overutilization, they're trying to prevent. Um, Inappropriate impact on referral decision making, or you know who, which doctor you see or which doctor you don't. So right. there are good goals that are, are trying to be achieved by these laws. They just sometimes get lost in overzealousness of enforcement. Um, you know, kind of just just really uh, focusing on uh, on on the inappropriate side of that enforcement. The other thing that I would say is, um, it's also trying to focus on medical necessity, which I think is probably one of the, uh, the the highest and best goals of these laws, is trying to make sure that when medical care is provided that uh, the government or other payers are going to pay for, that that medical care is, is necessary. So medical necessity, as opposed to things that aren't really used to help advance your health care uh to to treat um or minimize a, an actual health condition
1: yeah and, yeah and i like that. Yeah. So it's yeah. i'm sorry i was gonna say you know um i've spent some time in the in the med device and, and pharma world and and um I, I think you're right the goals are you know that decisions should be made off of what's best for the patient not off of financial relationships and you know sometimes some companies try to speak out of both sides of their mouth they they try to say well this money is not really influencing anyone when we do x y and z but then they have to answer to their board as to why do you spend so much money on marketing if it doesn't actually influence uh, sales <laughs> and so it's it's an interesting kind of tension there
0: yeah. One comment on that, a couple to kind of buttress what Keith said. You know, $0.10 cents a cup, yeah, shipping and processing, $50 for every claim. That's a distinction, I think. Uh, and it's a sliding scale, and that's unfortunate, right? We don't have benchmarks because every time – and I understand the reluctance of the government to introduce hard and fast barriers because the industry can always evolve around it, right? It's Kind of like Justice Potter Stewart said regarding obscenity, I know it when I see it. And I wish that was DOJ's perspective because what I see as a potential kickback isn't necessarily what they're bringing. But to your point, CJ, about the marketing, one of the big compliance concerns that Keith and I see in our respective practices is operations or the marketing business development people driving the train, right? Sending right. out those emails, encouraging providers to continue to utilize X, Y, or Z. And that has been used as exhibit A uh, for the government to bring these types of AKS cases. So providers, I think, really have to be wary of letting that operations marketing perspective drive the train and limit those communications and really yeah. focus, as you said, on the clinical component, clinical sides, the benefit logistically, why this is a better deal for the patient, cost less, better outcome,
1: less travel, whatever it's going to be. Yeah, are there any specific trends you're seeing, like topics or types of services that are cropping up a little bit more in this space?
2: Well, I think lab continues to be one of the uh, the the biggest areas for enforcement. Uh, one of the reasons reasons is, and, and kind of, I'll go back a little bit to medical necessity is. Oftentimes, it's a little bit easier to, to kind of fudge medical necessity or to, to enter into arrangements that incentivize someone to order lab tests because it, it's not a patient harm. You take one vial of blood and you can run, you know, 100,000 uh, lab tests. Uh, the other thing about labs is you now have an overlay of another statute uh, called uh, ECRA, Eliminating Kickbacks and Rehabilitation Act, um, which further restricts the ability, for example, we're talking about marketing, it further restricts the ability of a company to pay marketers, even employed marketers, based upon the success of their activities. So you, we're starting to see some enforcement, that, that statute's only a two, three, four years old, uh, so, but we're starting to see some enforcement come through there was a touch of a split in the um, in the circuits. The Hawaii circuit ruled a little bit differently than what other circuits have. Um, so there's some uncertainty there as well. But I, I think labs for me are is what I'm seeing as a continuing focus of of uh, enforcement. Telehealth is another one of those areas. Sean, have you dealt with any telehealth? Cases yeah, before? yeah, I would agree. So
0: the lab space, but specifically urine urine toxicology. Uh, and again, not so much the testing, but the way it's marketed or potential labs are invested, right, Keith? Yeah. That seems to be a big issue on the AKS. Uh, genetic testing, uh, PGX, CGX, cancer and genetic testing, huge yeah. issue. And, and, you know, CJ, Keith alluded to this before, but during the pandemic, everyone was encouraged to get COVID testing. Couldn't test enough, right? Exactly. So everyone was like growing resources to test. And on top of it, a lot of labs added this RPP, respiratory panels. Now the government is coming back and saying, well, that was completely improper. You only threw the RPP in to make money when operationally, right, you're in the middle of a pandemic, things are changing every day, and now DOJ is going to look back during those frenzied moments when you're trying to save employees, first responders, caregivers, and the residents of nursing homes and other patients, and they're saying, well then you test it too much. To me, that's the height of hypocrisy, and I used that before, but I just think that is just DOA. Uh, and it's a weak case. But get DOJ seems to be pushing that agenda. So the lab, yeah. telehealth huge. There was a huge takedown a couple of years ago. I think those cases have wound through and resolved on DME. But anytime you see telehealth and how those physicians are interacting with those patients, it's a problem because is there the government takes a position. Well, it can only be a legitimate face-to-face position, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, the pandemic has proven otherwise and Medicare right. is starting to allow it. But it's also the same thing with DEA. Well, you can't prescribe a controlled substance through a facial visit for telehealth. It has to be in person. Well, they would have to enforce the back off on those rules again. So we're seeing it in that area. We're seeing enhanced AKS enforcement. You're seeing it just in every actual component. And it seems like the government... It's now buckling and doubling down on what the industry can and cannot do as far as business operations, development, and growth. And at some point, there's going to be a reckoning. Maybe yeah. not today, maybe next year, but the courts, I think, are becoming a little more cognizant of at what point do we stop this? Yeah. Gotcha. Not to, not to at the, the aberrant behavior, which we've seen, but most providers are doing the right thing for the benefit of the patients. But ultimately... Yeah. You know, there are some bad actors here,
1: right? And, you know,
0: DOJ should yeah. take a hit. But
1: that doesn't yeah. mean a blank approach, right? Yeah, that. those are all great points. Um, we're at the point where I'm just going to take a short, short break, and, and we'll be right back. Thanks for listening to Compliance Conversations. We hope the expert information and discussions are a valuable asset to your compliance career. Healthicity also offers software solutions to help people like you manage their compliance programs. Compliance Manager is a comprehensive, all-in-one, customizable solution that will save you time, stress, and make your compliance program more effective. Head over to healthicity.com for a quick demo video to see how Compliance Manager can bring simplicity to your everyday work now back to the show welcome back everybody um uh gentlemen I wanted just to follow up on one last question and then maybe we can segue in- into kind of some other topics if you're okay with that uh you mentioned Ecra is that um that you know like some of these laws you were talking about are very very specific to federal health care programs is ECRA limited to federal health care programs or does that also cover you know, commercial payers?
2: Yeah. Well, good. Great question. Because unlike any kickback statute, it actually applies to any payer. And the interesting thing about it was um, it was really focused on the opioid substance abuse treatment um, and, and the abuse of lab tests uh, related to those kinds of patients. But in its enactment, it actually applies to all laboratories w- w- without regard to whether you you are doing substance abuse testing or anything else. So. It is a very broad uh, statute. It's a very restrictive statute. Um, And uh, uh, it it really has, I I think it's going to have even more impact um, on laboratories as cases start to wind through. Because again, in a kickback statute, we didn't really talk about this, but it has exceptions for employment that really give broad latitude uh, to pay your, your marketing personnel and others. Um, even if that payment relates to the success of their activities. ECRO yeah. really shut that down as it relates to laboratory marketing. And I don't know uh, that everybody received the message. So we're probably going to see a lot more cases
1: on that. Yeah, yeah that'll I mean, be interesting because, sorry, and I'll let you comment. Um, because as compliance officers, we've often focused heavily and probably rightfully so on rules and regs from government payers. And this is probably going to be a, a, a somewhat of a little shift for compliance officers out there to be paying attention uh, to a little bit outside of the government payers. Go ahead.
0: Yeah, absolutely, sorry to interrupt, you, Jay. This is interesting because it's the first all-payer statute from a federal perspective directly addressing compensation to marketers, 1099s, but also WTs. So what we're seeing under the passage of ECRA, which as Keith noted, was a response to the sober, quote, sober living homes in South Florida uh, it's an ill-conceived statute. I don't think it makes a lot of sense. But what it basically did is saying, we're going to criminalize conduct that the OIG for HHS in the employment context from a commission perspective has allowed for almost 30 years. And that's remarkable. So how do you compensate anybody in a lab situation with the threat of this criminal statute? And that's been a quandary, Keith. Yeah. And I don't know how you do it. And it's been very difficult. Uh, because even, Mark, I mean, what's a lot of the pharmaceutical and, and the uh, device manufacturing realm for commissions, after decades of enforcement, is per se a violation of a criminal law with a requisite intent under ECRA. So I don't know. I mean, I don't think we're going to see a huge amount. I think that statute is going to be amended at some point. Clearly... Marco Rubio's office did not communicate with the OIG or Department of Justice before that thing was passed. So it could have been footnote twenty twenty-seven thousand in a ten thousand page omnibus bill. Uh, but that's just my perspective.
2: You know, I think I think that's uh, really good input, and I, I think you're right. I I kind of expected it to be addressed maybe a little bit earlier than what it's going to end up being. But but I do think it it really it didn't take into account the history. Uh, it criminalizes otherwise a uh, behavior that's otherwise appropriate in, in other contexts within the same industry. So I think for all those reasons, it's going to be problematic. And CJ, I just wanted to tell you, give you two thoughts uh, before we move on. The first thought is uh, we're not questioning governmental motives, but everybody needs to keep in mind that fraud and abuse enforcement is a moneymaker for the government. I think it was just under $2 billion uh, that they pulled in from fraud and abuse enforcement in 2021. Uh, and that number continues to grow. So there is a financial incentive uh, for the government to pursue fraud and abuse cases. Again, when it's appropriate, I'm extremely supportive, but when we get to conduct that is not blatantly uh, uh, violative or inappropriate, then that's where it becomes concerning. The second thing, to kind of hammer on your point about the difference between potentially federal programs, commercial payers, or all payers, is that we're seeing a trend where the government is becoming the the world's cheapest and largest in-house counsel, in-house legal department for insurance companies. Where, when insurance companies see something that they may not be illegal, but they just don't like, uh, we're seeing referrals over to the government, and and those becoming investigation points. So, what, what people in the compliance community need to understand is that. Your potential liability is not limited to or it, it won't begin only because uh, a federal agent comes knocking at the door. It can, be, it can start because you were referred by a commercial payer. It can start because your receptionist thought he or she was underpaid and saw some things that they didn't like and reported it you know, tried or, or filed a false claim act. So there are many different areas uh, where liability can flow from and many different starting points where that liability can come from so that's the the important but scary thought process that compliance people need to be going through and, and, and understanding
0: right and and cj and i just want to say keith i was clapping there sorry cj because i was applauding keith for saying that because
2: <laughs> there are plenty of
0: smart government agents and smart prosecutors and people and, and people in the government but they always seem to substitute their alleged knowledge for industry realities. And it's always a reckoning and a wake up call when you try and educate people. And and CJ, I was one of those. I had no industry experience and I'm sitting there listening to what the contractors or the program or the agents are telling me, and they were wrong. And having conversations and having that dialogue with industries and heads of organizations really opened my eyes that, you know, Hey, There is a rationale for this. It can't just all be doom and gloom and bad. But unfortunately, I think it's kind of reversed and a lot of people just want to listen to the bad without taking the opportunity before pulling the trigger and doing something drastic to impact market share, organization, employees lives. Taking an opportunity to listen to the leadership first and saying, hey, what are we doing here? Now there's plenty of instances where perhaps that's appropriate. But a lot of times with the larger organizations with compliance programs, which is another benefit, established, credible, demonstrative, effective compliance programs, you should be given the benefit of doubt. And then they should be picking up the call and saying, you know what, CJ, we have a concern about this. Can you talk to us about this? And nine times out of ten, it's going to get resolved without that costly process that Keith described.
1: Yeah, those are all great points. Um, really appreciate your your thoughts on that. Um, you know, with with a little bit of time that we have left, should we uh, pivot a little bit and talk a little bit about private equity and compensation and, and those types of concepts, which are a little bit newer to a lot of us in healthcare compliance? Um, would you kind of set the stage as to why that's even an issue? Sure, absolutely,
2: and, and uh, thanks for tuning that up. Um, I, I think as people are kind of uh, aware of, there's been a significant uptick in uh, private equity investment in healthcare over the last few years. Um, you know, why that's important is that we're starting to see more um, enforcement actions that relate to those private equity relationships. Historically, those private equity firms have had a little bit of a laissez-faire attitude when it came to due diligence and risk acceptance. That What that means is really their risk best thresholds were typically higher than traditional purchasers in the healthcare market, and they were much more willing to push the envelope when it came to assuming legal risk. I, I think their thought process was that the risk was a simple math and money problem. Did sure. the potential financial reward of the deal outweigh the financial risk discovered due, due diligence? During due diligence, Uh, many companies felt like that if the reward was greater than risk, they could clean up after the uh, noncompliance was discovered um, when when the acquisition was actually closed. Uh, There's also, I think, a feeling that the PE company and its its principals were a little too far removed from the noncompliant activity occurring within what would be called their portfolio company. and so because of that removal, that they didn't risk significant personal or enterprise liability. Uh, uh, however, as some people may be aware of, there's uh, the Yates memo from 2015, which is really trying to um, hold individual's feet to the fire so that you couldn't just pass it off to corporate, li- you know, say, oh, this was a corporation issue, not an individual liability. Sean, do you have any thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, the Yates memorandum really was a sea change uh, during two administrations ago, and now it's been resurrected in the form of the Monaco, and now uh, Assistant Attorney General Ken Polite discussed something yesterday, really hammering compliance and, and cultural kind of cooperation and the focus on individual culpability. But I also see it from a liability perspective that A lot of private equity companies want to have their people in place, and they're pushing a financial agenda because they don't have that healthcare experience, Mm -hmm. or they aren't aware of the potential compliance risk. So I think from an acquisition and initiation, you've really got to do that due diligence, do your audits, focus on potential areas, especially because PE seems to be involved, and not acquisitions of systems, but ancillary sides where the EBITDA is so high
2: really focused, they're, they're doing a lot in the physician space yeah. and uh, working with physician groups and, and doing what we call roll-up physician groups and a lot of times um, this is profit-driven, which again, I don't think there's anything wrong with a profit motive, but when that profit motive collides with patient care, uh, when it collides with uh, other concerns, you know, the, the jobs that are available in healthcare when it when it collides with insurance companies and and the need to maintain some controls over the cost of care that's when it becomes problematic and with pe again we won't get too deep into it but um i think they're starting to see a lot more of the false claims uh exposure and as sean mentioned earlier false claims exposure can come from a an alleged or, or actual violation of the anti-kickback statute it can arise from uh, an alleged vi- or actual violation of the Stark Law. And um, the the threshold for one of those claims to be filed is relatively low. Now, the threshold for the government to actually intervene is a lot higher. Uh, but even if the government doesn't intervene, the, the uh, relator can go ahead and continue on with that. They often don't because what the government's saying is we don't really see a lot of value to this. But that's exposure. That's risk exposure. That's cost exposure um, to the private equity company, and and I think that that we're starting to see that with this um, this continued activity in the healthcare space, and that it, a lot of it is being driven by that private equity approach. I think we're starting to see the government readjust and start to take a, a, a much closer look at not only the portfolio companies that are being acquired, but at the PE companies themselves.
1: Yeah, and I think one of you mentioned the the Monaco memo, uh, for the, our listeners who don't know what that is, um, Monaco, she's the deputy attorney general of the U.S. Department of Justice, if I have that right. And the memo, I think, was released last fall, maybe September uh-huh. timeframe. And I think, guys, there's a a whole section on compensation, talking about kind of clawback of com- compensation for individuals, because you mentioned holding individuals accountable. And you know, they there's a section in that memo, if I'm not mistaken, that you know, best practices in um, compensation clawback if something goes wrong. Does that ring a bell? Is that, am I right there? Yeah, absolutely. And there's been iterations,
0: you know, over the last 30 years of the Deputy Attorney General memo and they're becoming much more prevalent, but yeah, holding individuals, calling back, essentially ratting out the culpable individuals, which presents ethical issues for any organizations in a quandary, right? Your client, you know, from just a compliance perspective, what's the board doing versus the executives doing? So it puts compliance officers and officials in a very tense situation, uh, because these C-suite persons may be held accountable, even in the private equity, and you may not have an avenue to address it, or they may not be willing to. So those are the types of cases I think are gonna be brought uh, clear-cut violations, but something with the private equity kind of bringing down their expertise and involving day-to-day in the operations of the acquisition. Uh, Otherwise, I think if they're hands off, it's kind of like I'm just an innocent stockholder. You can make those arguments, but you're absolutely right, C.J., that's been an increase by the Department of Justice and a kind of a a reversal from the prior administration.
2: Yeah, and C.J., the last thing I'll say is that um again like with the government this is not to demonize private equity by any means there's a lot of value that they can bring into the healthcare marketplace place there are efficiencies in operations efficiencies in in financing things like that that they can bring that can be extremely helpful um, when when you're talking about a service line or a product line that trying to get to the marketplace and make sure that there's a lot of access to it but with the good comes the bad. And there are, um, there are potentially bad actors that, that make it harder for everybody else. And so uh, I, I think that the ultimate issue is maybe five, six, seven years ago, private equity was able to jump in and and do what they normally do without a really significant level of exposure. That kind of immunity, if you will, is is quickly kind of being pulled. And private equity needs to make sure that when they um, come into the marketplace that they do so from a a, a position of strength and knowledge, that they have appropriate um, advisors, whether it's legal advisors or business advisors, that understand the marketplace and understand where that risk lies.
0: Yeah. And I'll just follow up on that, Keith. That's a great point. We saw this about, CJ, about 15 years ago with private equity and kind of corporate ownership into hospice and nursing homes where I okay. think it was the biggest okay. issue uh, for the government enforcement, uh, kind of the cram down on profitability. Right. But you know, private equity investing in health, is nothing, there's no inherent problem with that. And it's encouraging and it helps a lot of providers and it helps access to care for a lot of patients and otherwise rural underserved areas. So no, exactly. no ill will towards that. It's just simply, for as sophisticated as private equity is, they may not understand the nuances of healthcare. That's what Keith is saying. I believe that's where the rubber meets the road and problems arise. So make sure if you are investing in these, you've got the adequate industry people telling you what's going on and doing the due diligence.
1: Yeah, that is great advice. Um, you know, I could talk all day, but you know, we are coming to the end here. I, I'll give you um, uh, a moment to, to think if you have any last minute um, Thoughts, but I just wanted to say thank you so much. Um, you're both just have a wealth of knowledge in these areas, and I hope our listeners, um, you know, if they need help in these areas, would would consider both uh, Sean and Keith. Uh, gentlemen, any last minute thoughts or something I didn't ask, or you know something that you just the world needs to hear. <laughs>
2: well, I think the world needs to hear a little bit less of me right now because they've got better things to do. but Um, from from a number one thanks for having us on here uh we always enjoy talking about the issues that we see on a day-to-day basis Fraud abuse is a a very complicated area it can be scary if you don't know what you're doing but it's always important to uh talk to and work with people who know what they're doing um and so we, we we welcome outreaches we we welcome the opportunity to really just kind of talk through these things and and i couldn't do it without people like Sean who are there to, to really help uh, bring the entire uh, picture into focus. And and he is, he is somebody who I have relied upon, uh, worked with for eight, nine years now. And so uh, with, with him, I'm glad we were able to kind of convey a little bit of information to you.
0: Wow, Keith. I don't have to say I'm <laughs> choking up here. Uh, I will shell for my Miami Dolphins, CJ briefly, in the sense that they had a heck of a season, faced a lot of adversity <laughs> of like my healthcare providers, uh, and they performed well, came up a little short, but still did a great job. But Keith, I echo everything you said. It's been a wonderful opportunity, CJ, to talk to you. And as I'm sitting here talking, Keith and I would have these discussions all the time about cases. And so it's really a nice treat for us to share it with your audience, share it with you, To really discuss some of these issues and i think a lot of healthcare attorneys feel the same way but you know i do think the enforcement trend is pretty aggressive and providers spend the time on the front end to get to know a guy like keith and what he can do and what he can advise um, and kind of give you those contours initially because i'm the guy of last resort i don't want to be but it seems like that's what my practice (laughs) is so uh, appreciate
1: it and happy new year to everybody well, we could we could put your contact information in the show links, but maybe just verbally, you could just tell us again the, the firms you're with.
2: Sure. Uh, Keith Dugger and I'm with Hall Rinder here in Dallas, Texas.
1: And this a shot. I'm with Spencer Fane and Dallas, Texas as well. Awesome. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time and expertise. Um, maybe we can figure out a way to, to have one or both of you back again in the future. Uh, and thank you to all our listeners. Um, as a reminder, please remember uh, to, to like these episodes. If you like them, um, share them with friends and, and colleagues. Uh, we get the word out and, and kind of build that, that membership. Again, we're, we're grateful for our experts here today and wish you all a, a wonderful day. Thanks for listening.
0: Compliance conversations is sponsored by healthicity. HealthyCity designs software and services that simplify compliance and auditing challenges that reduce your risk and save you money. Where others see complexity, we see simplicity. For more information, visit HealthyCity.com.